Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the True Crime Couple podcast. Uh, First of all, we want to thank everyone that took the time to listen to our first episode. I know it was a long one. I know the audio was still a little rough, but we really appreciate everyone that listened, that gave us feedback or helped us out telling us how we did or whether it was like through social media. Yeah, guys, we really appreciate it. And, um, you know, just uh, if you like what you hear, just uh, leave a comment, leave a five star rating or whatever rating you'd like. That's perfectly fine with me. I mean, we'd prefer the five star. I would totally prefer the five star. (laughs) It really helps us out on iTunes. It helps us get started. But really, we can't thank you enough. Last week, we covered a pretty intense episode. There was a lot of information. So today, we decided to cover two somewhat smaller cases. We were talking, and we decided to take it back to what started this fascination with true crime for both of us, and that's horror movies. John and I love watching scary movies. What's better than a horror movie? N- nothing. We lo- And thank God you love horror movies or else this would not have worked out at all. You got that right. I drag him to a horror movie every weekend, whether it be in the theaters or through Netflix. I've made him watch more B-list horror movies than he wants to Trust remember. me, if anybody had our Netflix account password, they would see that. They would be like, okay, what the hell is wrong with these people? It's like all they watch. <laughs> yeah. So, ever since I can remember, I've loved horror movies. Uh, Some of my earliest memories are going to the video den with my mom when you still could rent videos. And she would always let me, shout out to my mom, rent like Nightmare on Elm Street and then go into the kids section and get a Mary-Kate and Ashley adventure. So, I was a weird child. Wow, what a combo. I know, I know. Well, it was like the mystery one, so it was kind of connected. I guess so. Uh, So... I mean, it is weird. Don't get me wrong. Horror movies absolutely terrify me. Just ask John about our nighttime routine after Trust a scary me, there's movie. There's a checklist involved. Guys, I kid you not. <laughs> this is how it happens. This is how it unfolds. So, we watch the movie. She goes to bed. Before I can go to bed, I actually have to check the closets, check underneath the mat, uh, the mat, the bed, you know. I also need to make sure three locks on the door are actually locked, and then I can actually proceed to go to bed. Okay, just in my defense, Richard Ramirez did hide in the closet and then come out at night once his victims were sleeping. Oh, boy. <laughs> but you're right. You're and right about that. I am right. I'm going to save our lives one day. So, <laughs> <laughs> the reason why horror movies got me into true crime was because it always tends to scare us a little bit more when we get that message across the screen saying that this is based on true events. Yeah, I mean, I guess that adds like an extra layer to being scared out of your mind, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, people watch horror movies because they want that extreme emotional experience without actually being in danger. But when you see that message, you're like, oh, this could possibly happen to me. Yeah, run for the hills. (laughs) (laughs) The crimes that we picked today seem to be real life horror movies. The crimes that we're going to cover today seem to be um, ripped from the transcripts of a real-life horror movie. And they really cover the things that scare us in some of our favorite horror movies. They reminded me of some of my favorites, and that truly terrified me. So we're going to get into the two cases now. I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer before we begin. I'm sure... John or I will swear in this episode, so I'm sorry if you get offended by swearing. If you don't like it, then maybe this podcast isn't for you. I'm sorry, guys. I can't control myself. (laughs) Um, And it's going to be extremely graphic, especially the second case. So before we begin the second case, I'll be sure to give this disclaimer again. Um, The information is going to be extremely graphic. So let's get into our first case. Now, this one horrified me. I mean, my favorite franchise in the horror movie is A Nightmare on Elm Street. I just love it. Everyone loves Freddy. Yeah. How could you not? So the headline that I read that caught my attention was man in demonic clown makeup with Freddy Krueger reminiscent gloves is now accused of killing and living in a dark place. Wow. Yeah. That absolutely horrified me. So... (laughs) Let's get, and this is extremely recent. This is going to take place in May of this year, so only a few months ago. Oh, wow, that's really recent. Yeah, so let's get into the info. At 1249 a.m. on Tuesday, May 23rd, 2017, 
police were called to the parking lot of Torchy's Tacos at 1085 Broadway in Denver, Colorado. It was there that they found the victim, 29-year-old Brian Lucero, unresponsive, with a stab wound in his throat. He was transported to Denver Health Medical Center, but failed to respond to treatment. His time of death was ruled at 1.11 a.m. Unfortunately, violence is something that occurs often within the homeless community of Denver, which seems to be on the rise despite efforts from the local government and community to keep it down. However, what is not so common about this crime is the report from the witnesses. This is when it gets weird. They reported the murderer was committed by a man wearing demonic black and white face makeup, sinister-looking black clothing, and gloves with knives coming out of the fingertips, reminiscent of gloves worn by Freddy Krueger in the film series A Nightmare on Elm Street. The man was slashing at the victim with his gloves before the man later is going to collapse. The murderer then leaves the scene on his scooter. Hold on. (laughs) I know. Hold on. So this man kills somebody and then drives off on a scooter? Yeah. Now, hold on, guys. Just just quick side note here. I have nothing against people who like scooters. You know, moped, scooter, whatever you like to call it. You know, Vespas are really cool. They're in. You know, like, they're very cool. I have no problem with them. But you just killed somebody and a dude leaves off on a scooter. It's kind of weird. I mean, it's very... Like, I can't picture Freddy Krueger ever leaving the scene of Elm Street on Unless a Unless you're, like, in one of his, like, dream uh, <laughs> worlds, maybe. Like, you know. Okay. Freddy in Paris. Freddy in Paris. <laughs> okay. So, it's very bizarre. And I know that sounds comical, the whole scooter thing. But I'm going to post pictures of the person accused of this crime. And it's absolutely terrifying when he has his makeup on and the gloves on. Because there's pictures of him on Instagram with it. And if that were to happen in real life, scooter or no scooter, I would be so scared. Oh, yeah. I mean, guys, honestly, Kate showed me these pictures while I was trying to sleep last night. Not cool. At all. Like, I, no, I thought I was going to have dreams about it. No, you, you were not cool. You were fucked up trying to show <laughs> me these pictures while I was trying to sleep last night. But that's okay. Okay. So, witnesses were brought into Denver Police Headquarters to give their statements. They all state that Lucero got into an argument with a man with white facial makeup that had black streaks running down his face and gloves with knives in the fingertips estimated to be two to three inches in length. The argument began at the corner store, which it's the name of a convenience store, conveniently named the corner store, a big transient hangout. The man with the makeup threatened Lucero And that's when the two men are going to exchange blows. It's here that they say that the person accused of the murder is going to be kind of slashing at Lucero. And he was forced to defend himself. By all accounts, the witnesses are saying that Lucero did not want to be involved in a fight with this man. Right. He wasn't the aggressor. No. They're saying that the other man was the aggressor. Gotcha. Lucero then tried to walk away behind the store. And the man followed him back up the alley, which connects to the parking lot of Torchy's Tacos. So that's how the murder took place at the taco location. Um, where Torchy's Tacos actually looks like a really good taco place. Taco place. There's a lot of taco places in Denver. It kind of makes me want to go to Denver and try out Torchy's Tacos. Taco spot. I mean, I'm sure there's other things to do in Denver. I'm sure. But, but you know how much I love tacos. <laughs> tacos seems to be the thing to do. So in the parking lot of Torchy's Tacos, um, that is where... The man is going to approach Lucero, and witnesses say that he then collapses. So we're assuming that that's when the stabbing is going to take place. The one fatal blow. Yeah, um, assuming to the neck. I mean, nothing has, not too much has been released yet. A lot has been kept kind of quiet because this is an ongoing investigation. I mean, this only happened in May. But this is then where the murderer is going to leave the scene. On his scooter. On his scooter, yeah. Um, a spokesman for the district attorney is going to reveal that the perpetrator's name is Christian Golzo, and he is being charged with first-degree murder. Golzo was taken into custody about 13 blocks away from the scene of the crime. When they find him, his clothes seem to be soaked with blood. So, that's one strike against him. Of course. Police found recordings on nearby Halo cameras of Golzo leaving the scene on his scooter. 
While doing so, he tossed an object into the bush. The object was a knife covered in blood. So it doesn't seem like the gloves are the murder weapon, but rather this knife that he has. So now let's get into who Christian Golzo is, because I don't think everybody is going to roam the streets on a Monday night wearing demonic face paint face paint with Freddy Krueger glove yeah yeah it's not that's not something you see every day walking down the street especially for us in the city you know if we go to the city we don't see that kind of shit so so um Christian Golzo is going to leave a big um imprint on social media so that's that is how we found out we knew so much that's how we find out so much about him Christian Golzo was also known as Christoph Golzlo. That's how he's known on SoundCloud, on Facebook, and Nurem Bellum, which is... Now I'm really deep into the Denver death metal scene at this point. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's a dark world. Which is paying homage to a lead vocalist of an industrial agrotech band out of California known as Cyclone 9. The lead singer of this band is name is Nero Bellum, and by all accounts, it seems that Golzo is kind of obsessed with him. So that's where I think his name, Nurum Bellum, came from. Now, right. if I'm pronouncing these names wrong, I deeply apologize to those involved in the Denver death metal scene. It's okay. I'm sure they don't mind. I'm sure. I mean, I hope they don't come after me. They're pretty horrifying. He has several social media accounts with which he is extremely active. On his Facebook page, he claims to be the owner, founder, producer, and promoter. Uh, wow, he's that's a, busy a lot. Guy. Kind of sounds like us with this podcast yeah, right now. That's us. Um, of World Music Studios and the band The Paranormals, which in October released their album The Dark Saint Kings. Of course, in October, that makes Ooh, sense. Very yeah. ominous. I know. Uh, with some original tracks such as Rulers of Darkness. Tortured Souls. Now, Tortured Souls, both on Facebook and on SoundCloud, are spelled Tortured Souls, but I'm assuming he means Tortured Souls, just going with the theme. That's just what I'm assuming here. There's a lot of spelling mistakes that occur, so I'm just... I guess he just didn't know how to use spell check, or grammarly. Or he was just very excited about getting out his Tortured Souls soundtrack. And the song Sinful Flesh. Now, this is the song that is going to be accompanied by two music videos actually um they're seen on his instagram and one was on soundcloud the one on his instagram was the one that we watched together yeah that was really disturbing highly disturbing it's really just his song sinful flesh in the background um and it's kind of like c-list horror film uh girl getting her her throat cut which is interesting because that is what happened to the victim so he seems to have this obsession with um, cutting of throats, which we'll get into later. But this was seen in the music video. And other gross, disgusting things. It was gross. And then, I can't say gross enough because it was that bad. It was bad. Um, his Instagram is still up under Nurem Bellum, if you care to see this. I do not suggest it. And I would love to read the lyrics of Sinful Flesh to you. But John and I listened to it several times, and we couldn't even make out one word. I swear, not even one. (laughs) Not even one. Yeah. We actually listened to quite a bit music from the Denver death metal scene, so we're pretty much experts if anyone has any questions for us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, um, our neighbors probably hate us, which is totally fine. Uh, You know, one hand does wash the other, you know. Um, They probably heard us listen to this at like 9 o'clock last night, and um, they probably didn't like it. No, they definitely think we're so weird. But that's fine because she's nothing but loud upstairs. Yeah, of course. So um, one thing that I thought was interesting that will come into play later is that one of the song titles that he has on his SoundCloud under Christoph Guzlow is called Consumed by Vengeance. And I think that's something interesting that will come into play. Uh, The one thing that's clear, though, throughout his social media sites and his SoundCloud is that he has a fascination with the devil, demons, the occult. And after the murder is going to take place, we can get a glimpse into Golzo's life 
through former friends and former bandmates. So some friend, people that used to be friends with him, used to be in a band with him, they're going to give a lot of interviews to the media, and it's through them that we can kind of look into his life and understand why this happened. Yeah, they definitely painted a picture um, for us to really get a better understanding of how he was. Right, 100%. And the first people we're going to hear from are The Undertakers, who are a Denver rap death metal scene band that Golzo used to be a member of. Um, And they stated that he was obsessed with demons, weapons, and achieving a musical fame beyond his ability. Wow. Yeah, they... They That's funny. Pulling no punches. Yeah. Um, they still, well, I mean, they have a reason to be angry with him. This is why. They stated that while he was with them, he performed under the pseudonym of Diablo. So it goes into his devil obsession. And the two band members' names that we'll be getting into is Zamgora Lilith, which is a pretty cool name. Zombie, kind of like a Fangoria thing. And Lilith, you know. Well, thank you for that breakdown. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Lilith is the oldest known female spirit, sometimes a demon or just a dark pagan deity. She's, you know, if anyone watches True Blood, they're all Lilith up. And the man in the band, his name is Boo the Ghost. A.K.A. Casper. No, John, don't make fun of Boo the Ghost. He oh, I'm sorry. scares me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, we listen to a lot of songs by Boo the Ghost and Zomgoria Lilith, and they seem to more have a kind of rap vibe with like a singing chorus. Yeah. That's what it seems to be. There is some questionable um, copyright things of them just singing other people's songs. Yeah. I just, we're not going to get into that yeah. because I don't want problems. So they are going to say that Golzo was kicked out of the band and he got extremely violent and he's going to threaten them. He's going to threaten their lives. Zamgora Lilith is going to state that he made multiple accounts on Facebook just to threaten me. He would say... I'll slit your throat. Here comes the cutting of the throat thing again. Right. He loves this. He's infatuated he, yeah, with this. Yeah, he is. He would threaten me, my kids, so he would even threaten her children, and threaten to go to shows and ruin them. It got to the point where I was going to get a restraining order. He's an awful person. That's a direct quote from her. He also made Facebook accounts as members of the band and would post it on the pages of the venues that they had booked claiming that they were going to destroy property. So we basically just tried to ruin every gig that they were going to go to. We tried to mess up their band activity and then he tried to threaten their family. So he really kind of went at them from both ends. Boo the Ghost had a lot to say as well because he's known Golzo since childhood. He said they grew up together and they were in a rap group, but Chris got a girlfriend and they had a son and the two parted ways. They lost contact for 13 years until they met again at the pizzeria Golzo was working at. It was then that he asked Chris to be a part of the Undertakers, who were then into the goth death metal scene. They stated that Golzo was more of a stage prop than a singer, because he is going to say that he's a vocalist. He was still working on his screaming and growls, so he wasn't really allowed to participate yet in the action. He was kind of just more of a songwriter and would dance around stage and kind of like get the crowd hyped and stuff. So that was it. He really just worked as a hype guy for the band and he was always dressed as a devil during their performances. The members claim again that he was obsessed with the occult, but specifically demons and weaponry, that he was going to um, just build this massive collection of occult weapons. That's what he wanted to do. And this is when he began wearing his demonic makeup, was his time with the Undertakers. So this wasn't something he was always into, but this is something that began once he met them and he got involved in this scene. Which I'm sure it started when he basically was in a, a glorified stage prop. I mean, what? how else do you draw so much attention from the crowd, being dressed like uh, the devil or a demon and calling yourself Diablo? I mean... Uh, right, and we are going to put pictures of him during his time with the band up on our Instagram and our Twitter page. So you'll be able to see that, see him dressed as the devil because you could see the progression of him wearing his makeup yeah uh by all accounts it seemed like he was trying very hard to fit into the goth scene in denver and wasn't succeeding so he really he was trying all he could to fit into this scene which was very exclusive and it was hard for him to fit in 
So he kept trying, I think, to be more and more extreme to fit in with them. Because by all accounts, it seems like this death metal goth scene in Denver was a tight-knit group. So it was hard to, if you didn't belong with them, like it was basically like you were never going to belong. Yeah, they just didn't want to accept other people unless you kind of like proved yourself sort of thing. Right, because yeah. you, how do you prove how hardcore you are? You By know? growling and screaming. Well, he's practicing it. <laughs> Some articles have claimed that Golzo was homeless at the time of his attack, but the band states that wasn't true. He was staying with his mom, neighbors... And sometimes he would stay with fans of The Undertakers. However, he began stealing from them. Yeah, that's so, kind of fucked up. Yeah. I will say this, though. Really quick side note. So I work in New York City, and um, I see the same guy all the time. A nice gentleman. His name's Adam. He's homeless. He always has a sign up, you know, please. Do you give him money? I give him, I give him like a dollar or two, that's you know, nice. when I can. I try to be nice. Um, but I'll tell you what. You know, he doesn't have no face paint. He definitely doesn't have a scooter, and he doesn't have a Freddy Krueger glove. No, so I think that goes to the account that, you know, he, he definitely wasn't homeless. A homeless guy's not going to have all of this stuff. He, by all accounts, the victim, Brian Lucero, is going to be well-known in the transient community. And it seems like the two just had, had a fight picked. Right. Also, if anything, he's not homeless. He's just a freeloader that lives in his mom's basement. Yeah, that's basically probably what's happening oh yeah uh they said that he was super into weapons and that he always had a knife on him spiked rings or spiked gloves like the ones he was wearing the night of the murder and that he always had blades on his boots just anything that he could hurt someone with right so guys just to get like uh the imagery he basically looks like a member of kiss who would like studded everything all over the place yeah uh we're gonna post pictures of this so you can see everything In regards to his threats on Facebook, the two said they rose above the actions of Golzo and didn't feed into him. Boo claims that on Facebook, he saw a lot of girls stating that Golzo was threatening to kill them. Boo would respond to their posts by saying he won't do anything. He's all talk. He went on to say that this happened all the time and that when they were kids, Golzo would try to act tough. He'd get into a fight and then he'd get beaten up. Uh, Zamgora is going to add, we thought he was a joke. And the band members had not talked to him in a year's time since the murder, so they hadn't spoken to him recently. They maintained that they did not think he was capable of murder. They really thought it was just all for show. One of the girls that Boo is referring to is fellow Denver scene musician Akira Jadix. Now, Jadix claims that she was friends with Golzo, that they shared their music they streamed each other's music through um, a program called you now where it's kind of like facebook live or like instagram live where you can post something and people can comment the only difference is on you now people could be more like fans and send gifts to you Um, they'd went out for drinks several times and he had spent the night at her house and even met her mother however golzo wanted more than friendship from her He would blow her kisses while they were streaming, or he would message her asking if they could go on a date together. Now, really quickly. Yes. When he's blowing the kisses, is he wearing the face paint? No, I think it's more like in a comment section, like he's sending like an emoji. Okay, so it's not like a picture literally of him blowing kisses with his face paint on. No. Okay. No. Um, When she firmly rejected him about a month in, he began to threaten her life. So here we here he is again threatening somebody's life. He sent her a Facebook message that says, "What the fuck is this shit, bitch? I will kill you." When she denies him. Wow, that escalated quickly. Yeah. Uh, when Jadix posted on Facebook stating that he was threatening her, his fans, her fans, I'm sorry, are going to reach out to him asking him to stop. And this is when he's going to make two posts on social media directed towards her. So, it read as follows. The first one's a message and the second one's a picture. Who else will you curse by sending them my way? Azazel will follow and destroy you all. So, he's referring to the fact that he has this demon, Azazel, on his side. Okay? And the picture is followed by a picture... I'm sorry. The post is followed by a picture of Randall Flagg, if anyone's ever seen the miniseries The Stand, you know, the Stephen King book, yeah. Randall Flagg is the 
the like ultimate evil character who is going to turn into like this devil-like figure and the picture is of him as the devil and that's what he's going to post so I guess he's assuming that like this is his demonic figure that's helping him out side note because I love Stephen King this character Randall Flagg this like ultimate evil is it shows up in a lot of his books so it also um is going to be in other series and you always know it's him because his initials are RF and it's like a character that is supposed to be so attractive to males or females so like they look different to every person but they kind of like rope you in and then that's how they they suck you in oh wow that's an interesting fact yeah i just i love stephen king and side note john azazel is the yellow eyed demon from supernatural oh my God, supernatural yeah I love that show. so he killed mary winchester oh, and that's man. fucked up that's not cool i know we love Supernatural. So she is going to report all of this to the police because now he's threatening her life. He continue, He's continuing to do so. And they said they would talk to him, but there was never any follow-up. Jadick states that the harassment never really stopped. When she would stream on You Now, he would comment disgusting, degrading things to her. But when he saw her in person again the next time at one of the recent shows that was going on, he didn't say anything to her because she was with his her boyfriend. Okay. So he's not going to say anything in person, but behind the computer screen, he seems to be attacking her. Gotcha. So maybe that's where it comes from when people say, oh, he's all talk. Because he doesn't ever seem to do anything in person. Right, but the problem is all these people have completely underestimated him. Because, I mean, this guy looks like he could snap at any moment. Yeah, that's what it seems like. So, is Boo the ghost right? Is Golzo just all talk? One thing that's going to completely disagree with this statement is the fact that he has a police record dating back to 2000. He has several domestic violence charges, weapons convictions, and a felony menacing with a deadly weapons charge. The menacing with a deadly weapons charge goes as follows. On February 20th, 2012, as Golzo was moving out of his apartment with his son, who was at the time 11, he got into a fight with his aunt, Lisa Reyes, 46. She stated that he pulled a gun out of his coat so she could see it. She was really scared and got into her car. When she looked back at him, he was pointing the gun at her face. She then drove away in fear that he was going to shoot her. Golzo and his son ran across the street into a convenience store bathroom. When the police found them, his son is going to tell them that his father dropped the gun, which was a BB gun, by a pool. So those are the charges that, that he has on his record. But now he's facing the charge of first-degree murder, which in the state of Colorado, he could get the death penalty for. So this is pretty severe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, subjecting your kid to that as well. It's I kind know. of crazy. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like he has full custody of his son. And due to the domestic violence charges, he had, he seems like he's in anger management classes. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, yeah. Golzo has a different story than all of the witnesses. He's going to say during his interrogation that Lucero was trying to steal his scooter from him and Lucero must have fallen after a brief altercation. And Golzo then speculates that maybe he was jabbed by his glove or fell on one of his spiked bracelets. Now, Golzo's father is going to weigh into this situation and he's going to paint a kind of different story of the man. Um, Golzo, by the way, is 37 years old. His father is going to say that his son works at a pizzeria and lives with his mother. He's a vocalist in a death metal band and has been taking anger management classes and was possibly not taking his medication during times of the attack. Golzo then adds that maybe it was the death of his brother in 2009 in a South Dakota kayaking accident that may have mentally affected him. Friends and family back this up by stating that he was a lonely, troubled man who endlessly shared dark obsessions through social media, but rarely made real-life connections. They added that he often went into public wearing elaborate demon, vampire, and ghoul costumes. He did a lot of role-playing. One friend specifically states, I think ultimately he was sad and lonely. 
Looking back at his posts now, he seems to be looking for a sense of belonging. It seems any time he felt slighted by someone or that his ego was bruised, he became angry. If you want, some examples of his post are going to be the following. It felt nice to give an autistic homeless youngster a free ticket to my show at Cyclone 9 just to see a smile as greatness. Um, he later states, um, he posts a picture of his famous singer Nero Bellum with uh, lyrics that say, I can see gazillions of eyes looking at me with looks of begs of mercy. As I look down on the faces, I wonder what will happen. How painful sick will this be? How long will this last? Uh, he then states, the fakes will be exposed and disposed of. Behold, I am the true Satan. He is also going to post pictures of Nazi propaganda posters and himself in elaborate costumes. He goes on to say um, about a taser, if I had one, I might kill myself because it's such a rush. So these are some statements by him on his Facebook page. We can get into the discussion a little bit on why we think he did it, because I think it's more than just, you know, they had an altercation. I think it's going to go a little bit deeper. I would say even deeper than the fact that maybe he wasn't on his medication during that time period. I think this, as you can see, has escalated within the past year of him being fired from this band, I think was the starting point of his his anger. Right. You know? I completely understand. I mean, it did go from zero to 100 really, really quick. Um, I mean, obviously, if you have medication, if you're prescribed medication and you don't take your medication, that's a problem. I think that between trying to fit in to the death metal scene, between, you know, maybe. And not being accepted. It doesn't And not seem- being accepted. Right, exactly. Like, he just wasn't accepted. No matter what outlet he used, it seemed like he just wasn't really recognized. For anything. Right, and he's getting rejection from both ways. I mean, if he wants to succeed so much musically and he's just been let go from a band, people are telling him he's not talented, and then he's trying to start a a relationship with somebody and shuts him down, it just seems like he gets triggered very easily. Yeah, he definitely has a short fuse, you know, and he really, you know, he does act on when he's affected you know he really acts on those things you know whether it's social media you know posting things regardless of you know if he's you know he's all talk no you know you know no show no show well i mean it still takes a specific person to put those things on social media yeah like you have to really want people to see it because there's a difference between sending someone something like a text message or posting it on social media knowing others are going to see right, it Right, because well. he needed the audience. Or better yet, he wanted the audience to see. Right. And um, something that we can relate to this is, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I'm not saying that I ever will be. But it seems like there's something called intermittent explosive disorder. And it's really just... When someone's reaction is grossly disproportionate to the situation. That seems to happen with him a lot. Now, that could be like with flying into violent rages or just threatening somebody. So it seems like he's been threatening people and threatening people and nobody's been taking him seriously. They've been taking him as a joke. And because of his weapon fascination, it's made him dangerous. And he's going to lash out. And it seems like Brian Lucero was the victim of this man's rage against so many other people. Right. He definitely took it out on him, mm-hmm. especially in the, in, in the um, you know, the amount of violence that was done to right. him. Right. And, we, I mean, we could also say that he was just someone who couldn't distinguish between reality and his fantasy world of his demonic occult, whoever he thought he was or whatever character he was creating, maybe that became a reality for him when he wasn't taking the medication that he was supposed to be on. Right, I mean, the guy thinks he's the devil. Um, he has demons working for him. I mean, this guy's out of his mind. Right, it seems like he's a weapons enthusiast with delusions of grandeur, just thinking that he is somebody who should be paid attention to and isn't being paid attention to. Right, like, to. you know, the, he, you know he's, he wants people to be looking up at him, you know? Right, and now Christian Golzo is facing a first-degree murder charge, which does hold the death penalty, We'll definitely keep everyone updated on this as it goes on. Right now, he's being held without bail. So as we get more information on this case, 
We are going to keep you guys updated. I think this will be an interesting one to follow. I think a lot of things are going to unfold during this. But I do think it is important that we leave with closing respects for the victim. Uh, with a case so immersed in the world of Facebook, I thought it was appropriate to turn to it one last time and read a post by Brian Lucero's brother that he left for him on his Facebook page. So the post reads, Well, today I received the news I never wanted to, but was always unfortunately expecting. My brother was taken from us last night, though I was not given a lot of information other than that he was found injured in Denver and later died at a nearby hospital. A suspect is in custody for first-degree murder. Those who were close to him know the kind heart he had, though he was always walking down his own path and no one could make him change, course, no matter how much we tried. I will always cherish the good and bad times we had and wish there were many more opportunities to come to be together again. I love you so, so much, Brian Lucero, and miss you already. I have these past few months. Please keep my family in your prayers. And our respects go out to the Lucero family for their loss. We will definitely be sure to keep you updated on the Christian Golzo case. And any new things that come up, we'll post right away on Twitter or Instagram. All right, so now we're going to be talking about our second case. And I just want to remind you about the disclaimer that I said in the beginning of the episode. This one is going to be extremely graphic and it involves harm being done to young children. All right, I'm going to set a scene for you. It's May of 2007, and we're in the town of Curum in the Czech Republic. You are parents of a newborn baby girl, and you're setting up your baby monitor for later in the night when you put your child to sleep. As you're testing out the camera, your monitor feed gets crossed with that of your neighbors, who has the same model as you do. But instead of seeing your child's crib, you see the eight-year-old boy from next door, naked and bound in a small room. You immediately call the police, and when the police arrive, they find young Andre bound in a closet, he's eight years old, and two other children in the house, Jacob, 10 years old, and Anna, age 13. Their mother, Clara Morova, was arrested, and the three children were taken in by the Child Protective Services of the Czech Republic. If that's not the opening scenes of a horror movie, I don't know what is. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, but it gets even creepier. So after a highly publicized police investigation that's going to take place over a year, there is going to be the reveal of routine violence being made against Andre and Jacob for a six to eight month period. And the tr- this is when the trial is going to be held. So a year later, the trial is going to begin in June of 2008. What follows is the biggest child abuse trial in the history of the Czech Republic, where in just seven days' time, 45 witnesses are going to be heard. Now, the trial is going to last two months, but in that seven-day period, 45 witnesses had to speak. The trial was heard by a Judiciary Senate made up of three judges, and they were headed by Judge Pavel Goth. During the trial, the boys confessed to the judges what happened to them over the time of abuse. And this is going to take place between 2006 and into 2007. They stated that their mother and aunt, as well as four others, inflicted the abuse because of their involvement in a cult. The abuse included the following. The boys being kept in dog kennels or handcuffed to the dining room table. The boys having to read obscene text out loud. They had to cut and burn each other. Cigarettes were put out all over the boys' bodies. They were whipped with belts. The boys also had signs of sexual abuse happening over a prolonged period of time. Um, Unfortunately, Andre is going to suffer something even graver. Um, They are going to remove flesh from his arm you know, while he's completely conscious, and they're going to force him to eat his own flesh, and other parts of flesh are going to be consumed by other members of the cult. That's some fucking sick shit to do to a child. It's disgusting. Now, that's the abuse that Andre and Jacob are going to face within the house. So it seems like Andre definitely suffered the worst of the 
abuse. Yeah, and um, by some testimony that was given by a firefighter who had to break down the door to get into the closet where he was held, um, he said as soon as they broke down the door, it was nothing but the smell of urine and excrement. I mean, it seems like they didn't even let the boys go to the bathroom. So, like, they would have to sleep overnight in, you know, like, them going to the bathroom. Those poor kids. I know. But what's weird here? What did I leave out? How many kids were taken out of the house? Oh, my God. You didn't mention Anna. Right. So, let's talk a little bit about Anna. Oh, no. Now, by some accounts, um, people call her Annika in certain documentation. But let's just go with Anna because... It's just easier and simpler to just stick with one name. Sometimes people are referred to by several names, but let's stick with Anna. So what happened to Anna? Now, it's important to note first that Anna was not the biological child of Clara. She was adopted in 2005. One night at the child care facility, her and Jacob were watching television. So all three children were taken to the same child care facility because they wanted to keep them together for emotional support. And they really weren't supposed to be watching television because, of course, I mean, this is some crazy stuff. So it was all over the news during the time period. It was even in the news here in the United States. So they didn't want the kids to watch TV because they didn't want them to see what was, you know, playing out through the media. Right. But the two of them had snuck into a room and they were watching television and they turned on the news. And Clara was on the news and it said that she was facing jail time. After Anna heard this, she escaped from the child care facility. She is going to run away to be with her family members in Norway. She was finally found in January of 2008. Um, so the authorities wanted to question her about the abuse that took place at the house. But they just wanted to clarify that she was who she said she was because her appearance was so different. Her hair was cut really short. Um, she seemed really gaunt, like she'd lost a lot of weight. So they took hair and blood samples from her. And after they took the hair and blood samples, it was revealed that she was not 13-year-old Anna. She was really a 33-year-old woman named Babora Skorlava. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh my God. So That's she, crazy. So it wasn't a 13-year-old girl the whole time. It was a 33-year-old woman living in the house fucking way i know it's like the movie orphan it is like the movie Orphan. that's exactly. where they got the idea of orphan from was wow. from this case yeah so the plot thickens so she had been hiding in norway under the guise of being a 13 year old boy that's why they wanted to do the blood and hair samples because she looked so different because she changed her appearance to look like a boy anna was extremely i mean now we can call her barbara she was extremely tiny now throughout the trial she's gonna gain a lot of weight so her appearance is going to change you just see like the progression of her being super super thin with like no hair she did look like a 13 year old boy now all of a sudden she's she's changed she looks like a 33 year old woman so but crazy that's bizarre yeah when the boys revealed her as one of their abusers she became the sixth defendant in this child abuse case and her identity is actually going to be very interesting because she is the daughter of the cult leader of the cult that is supposed to be, you know, carrying this abuse through, telling the women to abuse these children. So let's go through the six defendants. Clara Morova, who's the mother of Andre and of Jacob. Katerina Morova, who's her sister and the aunt of the two boys. Uh, Jan Turek, Hannah Basava, Barbara Skrilova, who is 13-year-old Anna, but really 33-year-old woman. Crazy. And Jan Skarla, who is the brother of Barbara. So these are the two children of the cult leader. So Barbara and Jan Skarla are the children of the cult leader, which we'll get into. Before we get into the sickening testimony that's going to take place, and don't worry, I'm not going to get into the transcripts of the abuse because it's disgusting. Let's talk about how this family came to be. So, like, how did Anna end up in their house? Yeah, that's, you know, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? So, 
Barbara is going to give an interview to one specific journalist in the Czech Republic, and that's kind of where we get an insight into this Anna character. Barbara states that she created Anna at a scout camp one day. So I'm assuming kind of like what we have, like Boy Scouts, Girl Scout camps, or just kind of maybe like a summer camp, something like that. She used Anna as an escape because she found adult life difficult. Seriously? Uh, Yeah, really? Yeah. That's an easy way out. (laughs) That's kind of complicated. (laughs) You know, you're right, actually. Um, While she was Anna, she played with children and sometimes acted like a child herself. And it's stated during the interview, which I tried so hard to find and I couldn't find, that she, and I did have to translate so much stuff for this case, It stated that during this interview, she referred to herself and Anna in the third person and that she would go back and forth between acting like a child and acting like an adult. She stated that she always took jobs at children's facilities, and it was at one of these facilities that she met Katerina, Clara's sister. In hearing about her nephews, Barbara is going to enroll as Anna at the same scout camp as the two boys and befriends them. Now, it's kind of like in the background that this whole cult thing is going on at the time because the one defendant, Hannah, is going to work with Katerina and Barbara at this child facility. So I think that's when Barbara is going to kind of bring these two women into this cult that her father is is leading. And then that's when the attack on the boys is going to happen. So it's not long after that Anna meets the two boys at this scout camp that she is going to befriend them and she gets adopted by Clara. They're able to do this legally because she's assuming the identity of one of the cult members' teenage daughter. So one of the cult members has a teenage daughter and that is Anna in real life and she takes, she assumes her identity. So she catfished. Right. Okay. Barbara was being groomed to take over the cult once the fanatical leader was to pass away. So once her father died, she was supposed to be the next in line to kind of lead up this cult that was going on. And that's when the abuse is going to happen in the home of Clara Morova once Barbara is going to enter the picture. So now, the no, no abuse happened up until, like only up until... Anna got there, correct? Yeah. That's when the abuse is going to start. And by all accounts, um, they did seem to be... I mean, she was a single mother household, but she was supporting her sons. She actually has a degree in education, Clara Morova. And by all accounts, she was a great mother. But then it seems once Barbara's going to enter the picture and her sister's going to get involved, that things are going to start to go downhill. Now, now, Kay, do you think that the mother had any idea that Anna, like Anna's real, you know, that Barbara was really Anna? Like, do you think that she knew? I don't know. There's some conflicting accounts with this because Anna is going to tell the two boys that she was a victim of sexual abuse. So in a way, they thought that she was a 13-year-old girl who was living with them because she was escaping somebody doing something horrible to her. Maybe Clara thought the same thing. Right. You know, and that's, and maybe her sister said, here's a girl at this children's facility, which has been abused. She needs a good home. Can you take her in? I mean, maybe that's how this whole thing started. But things are a little bizarre with this because during one of the testimony of a family friend, his name is Yari Halvacek. He testified that in the fall of 2005, so this is when the adoption is going to take place of Anna, that Clara called him and asked if he could drive her to go pick up Anna, and he agreed. And during the drive, Clara is getting directions from Katerina over the phone the whole time, and they're kind of driving around like a wooded area in the Czech Republic. They eventually find Anna in a wooded area with her wrists bound and a bag over her head. That's really weird. It's so weird. And he's going to tell Clara, I want to go tell the police, like, this is crazy. And she says no, because Anna will get in trouble and she'll be hurt more. See, to me, that's weird. That's a weird response. 
like after seeing all of this unfold, right? Mm-hmm. And you have a family member that wants to call the police and then you say no because Anna is going to get in trouble. To me, that sounds like she's covering up for Anna because she doesn't want Anna to be exposed of her real identity. That's true. Or you could maybe make the stretch of an argument in saying that that's how they had Anna escape the abuse and like she was no I can't even make the argument for that I really think that that's what it was at the end of the day here that she's covering up I think that she's just covering up exactly yeah I think that it's no matter what no matter if she didn't know who was coming into her house once that person starts suggesting that you should abuse your children in the way that she did that should have been the red flag and you should have kicked that person out. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, Clara's going to make the argument that she is going to be influenced by this cult and that she says she can't say no to them because they're going to overpower her. But I just don't think that that's a legit enough argument. Right. Because what happened was horrible and it was over months and months so there's no way that you couldn't get help if you th- if you right. knew what was happening was wrong I will say this though um because I, I, you know I'm sitting here and I'm listening to all this and I I am thinking about one other scenario here right what if it's possible I mean I don't even want to put you in this in this specific specific scenario here okay but let's say you were the mother of these children mm-hmm. and you know you adopted Anna turns out to be this woman that you know you find out that she's, you know, very involved in a cult, and you are basically forced to uh, carry out this abuse. If you thought that, oh, if I do the abusing, maybe it'll be less than what the cult might do. And you know, you know what I'm trying to say, sort of? Yeah, I know what you're like, trying to say, uh, but there's just so much interaction from the outside world that it's not like these two like these people are being held captive somewhere right like there's normal day progressions happening people are going to work teachers are coming in giving certain tests because the boys are homeschooled at this time okay so i know we just keep throwing around this idea of like the cult the cult this but let's get into what this cult was i think that'll clarify a few things so, the abuse of these boys was said to have been organized by a Bernau splinter sect of the religious following known as the Grail Movement. All of the defendants, except for Clara, were members. The sect was cut off by Grail Movement officials years prior to the abuse. But the leader of this kind of splinter sect, Joseph Scarla, who is the father of Barbara and the other defendant, Jan Scarla, is going to continue this practice. A former member of the cult is going to testify that life in the cult revolved around pleasing Scarla. With a spiritual devotion or manual labor, you basically had to devote everything to him. Your time, your money. And he also stated that people in the cult truly believed that if you left the cult, you were going to collapse into evil. So people were scared of him and they were scared to leave. He seemed to be this larger-than-life figure that we see with people who lead cults. So in grooming Barbara, it seems like for some reason they put such focus on uh, the abuse of the two boys. And, you know, we'll kind of get into that in our theories section a little bit later. Yeah, I mean, these people were definitely brainwashed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. What I'm thinking was that they were really breaking down these boys psychologically and physically at the hands of Barbara um, because the cult needed devoted leaders. So if Barbara is going to be the new person who is going to take over after her father, she needs to be this larger than life figure. And it said, it said that all people like she was kind of like a, like worshiped like this tiny woman, childlike woman figure was worshiped by all these members. And maybe through, Andre and Jacob, they wanted to break them down so much. So when Barbara eventually took over, she had these two super loyal... Zombies. Yeah, basically. And that's what seems to be the situation here. So through reading the court testimony, another thing occurred to me, which was interesting. 
Nobody reported any of this abuse. And there's no way that this wasn't seen by so many people throughout a six to eight month time. Even the neighbor alone. I mean, how do you not notice that something crazy like this is going on? So the man that saw Anna, in quotation marks, should have reported it first off when in the fall of 2005. Um, there's two other court testimonies that really struck me as being odd. And I did some further research into... Um, Mandatory reporting. So this is the deputy mayor of Bernau who inspected uh, the Polsek Youth Center in February of 2004. This is where Katerina and Hannah worked. And for a short period of time, Barbara was going to work there. So this is where the three of them met. During the visit, the mayor was told not to go into a certain door. But she went in anyway. And she went in long enough to just catch a glimpse in a dim room of a figure laying in a mattress, and she said the room smelled of urine. Next, a teacher is going to testify that gave Andre his homeschooling progress exam for the 2006-2007 school year. And she said the boy looked alarmingly sick, and she sent him home without finishing the exam. So these two people, I looked into it, there's 15 countries within the EU that have mandatory reporting laws. So certain people in certain positions, if they see abuse or they suspect abuse, they have to alert the proper authorities. And the Czech Republic is one of these countries. And both of these women fall under the mandatory reporting job. So why did they not report this abuse? It seems like this was a fallout of a community to me. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the sentencing that took place. Now, this is going to be a far cry from our first case where we discussed the fact that Christian Golzo is facing life imprisonment for the stabbing of Brian Lucero. For this case of the gross abuse of two children, Katerina Morova, their aunt, is going to receive 10 years in prison. The mother, Clara Morova, is going to receive nine years. Jan Scarla receives seven. And the other defendants only receive five years in prison. And it's at this time that Jan Scarla and the other three defendants, they're out. That is insane that they're already out already. I know. I mean, they, you know they were very entrenched in this. Oh, yeah. And the coal, I mean, that's not going away. Oh, no. I, that's shocking to me. That is so shocking to me. Now, Barbara refuses to re-enter the Czech Republic. She's scared of what's going to happen. She's scared of the media, the public. So the Czech Republic doesn't have to worry about seeing 33-year-old orphan anymore. That is just, it's such a bizarre case where it's just like, it seems like every time you turn around, like something scarier happens. That's a real life horror movie for these two children. Absolutely. And the two boys have been kept out of the public. So there's no current day pictures of Andre or Jacob. I'm sure that's probably not even their names anymore. So the boys can try to go on and live healthy, productive lives in society. But, I mean, there's no getting over that. You've ruined these two children. And, you know, real quick side note. All these neighbors that were around them, they all had to have seen something. I mean, something. Whether it was a cry for help. Uh, maybe you witnessed them. They looked a little frail. <laughs> Anything. I mean, when I look out my window and I see my neighbor in like really crazy colors, uh, that they, she looks like a walking highlighter. I see her all the time. People, neighbors <laughs> see things. That's our upstairs neighbor. So I just don't understand how not one neighbor reported anything. You know what? Something similar is going to happen recently in Chicago where a woman is going to be systematically abusing and torturing her kids because she suspected them of sexually abusing each other and that's her reasoning for killing her children and the same thing happened where the kids were homeschooled so I mean they didn't have to report to school every day but how do you in an apartment complex not realize that kids are being tortured and killed and then when you don't see kids anymore, how do you not realize it? Right. That's my point. I mean, you know, your neighbors, you see them all the time. It's, it's weird. Um, it is very bizarre, but I think it has to do with something that's happening in our societies that we're becoming more and more shut in. And we are, we just don't want to see it. And if you don't see it, it's not happening. Right. So 
I mean, it's a sad aspect, but it's something that is a reality, unfortunately. So it's these two cases that really show us that reality can be scarier than fiction sometimes. So we started watching horror movies. You get into the idea that really people in this world are scarier than people in the fiction world. I think that that is so clear through the things that we've talked about today in these two cases. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And we will definitely keep you updated on the release of Clara or Katerina Morova, those crazy maniacs. And we will keep you updated on the Christian Golzo case. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you enjoy this episode, give us five-star review on iTunes. It helps us more than you know. And please give us feedback. We loved hearing from everybody. Yes, guys, please comment and give us a rating. It would really, really be appreciated. All right. Thank you so much and see you next week. Bye, guys.